uh, any questions around? I have a, well, let me say this. So tonight is the start of tonight, and the next, and the following two Thursdays is a series uh, on the, this topic. I'll explain what it means in a minute, but uh, what's called hatred, greed, and delusion. That phrase, hatred, greed, and delusion, is a really important, kind of a big deal in Buddhism. So we'll talk about it in a minute. So tonight's the first night about on that topic. Uh, and it's a big topic. Um, but first, I want to take a little time to see if there were any any questions about just the meditation practice itself. Yeah? I have a question about uh, concentration, meditation as opposed to mindfulness. Yes. Okay. Well, so let me just repeat that since, uh, yeah, uh, in case anyone didn't hear. The question was, he's asking about really the distinction between concentration meditation and mindfulness meditation. And he said he's worked on one specifically asking what's concentration meditation. Actually, you know, she had mentioned I'm writing a book. So that happens to be the topic of my book. It's, uh, I'll say a little something, but it's a topic I care about a lot. Uh, the word, you don't have to learn these poly words at all but some of you may know, some of you may have heard the word samadhi, samadhi. It means concentration. And so oftentimes the way we tend to teach, people really equate vipassana meditation with mindfulness practice. But vipassana is actually, it's a combination of two things. It's a combination of mindfulness and concentration. I'll I'll explain in a second. Uh, Together. And um, so for example, just using the way, and I know that the instruction I gave at the beginning tonight, it was just really quick. It wasn't a lot. So, um, and I, Oh, and I wanted to say about that too. Every Thursday night before this sit at 7.30, there's a beginning meditation instructions from 6.15 to 7.15. And that's an opportunity to get a lot more detail. Um, if you did nothing but just paid attention to the breath, that would take you very, very far. Um, but I just want to say I realized that it was pretty terse. And... Um, so anyway, getting back to your question here, it's a big question. Um, I'll say this. If, so just using the example that I gave tonight of just working with the breath, by bringing the attention to the breath, there's actually two things happening at the same time. One is by keeping coming back, coming back. It actually is strengthening the concentration. The concentration is the, is the ability to stay steady and fixed with the attention. Not have the mind wander, just really settle down, calm down, and be present. And then the mindfulness is actually the knowing of what's happening in the moment. Right? You could stay stick, fixed and steady and have a lot of concentration with no mindfulness. You could go into trance, say. I don't know if you can relate to that if you haven't experienced that. So um, if you just tried to be mindful but didn't have any concentration, then in a moment you could be mindful of whatever, a breath or any experience. But if you didn't have any concentration, it wouldn't last long because the mind would just wander off and you'd be lost for 10 more minutes and then you'd remember to come back and be mindful for two breaths and be gone. Right? So the concentration is, is adding in a piece. Hey, so uh, I, I, I had no idea. I guess I thought, I thought they wanted you to look at something like with your eyes open and concentrate on it. Why you... So let me say this. I need to say a little more to answer your question. So... 
There's actually two different approaches to meditation in Buddhism, so this is a big topic, but maybe it's worth spending a few minutes on. I, uh, um, let me explain one, and then I'll go back to the other. What's very common in... in the, so this practice, Vipassana, comes out of a, of a, a school of Buddhism called Theravada Buddhism, which is one of the only, actually, of the early schools of Buddhism that were around from the time of the Buddha that survived to today. All the other early schools from back then died out. And all the other forms of Buddhism around were later developments. So in Theravada Buddhism, sometimes they'll, they'll separate out the, the, what they call insight practice and concentration practice. The concentration practices, they don't care about the mindfulness. You're just trying to develop this kind of concentration really strongly. You can do it by working with the breath. You could say a mantra over and over again. You could open your eyes and fix it and just stare at like colored discs. And there's many, many techniques. But they all have one thing in mind. You just get so concentrated. For those of you who are new, this might not, just forget this, but uh, uh, it'll just take another couple of minutes. You get so concentrated it's called fixed concentration and your mind just, I mean, it's just so fixed there that no other consciousness, no other awareness can get in there. And you lose awareness of everything else, the body awareness, thoughts, all the changing flow of experience just drops away and you're just fixed on it. And it's, it, it's great. I mean, it's very blissful. You go off in all these meditative states that we could describe um, and have all these meditative experiences when you do that. People who teach that would say, do that kind of practice until you get super concentrated and then switch over to this other kind of practice called, that they would say is the Vipassana style, where you don't want to get so, you've got now built up your concentration. Now you want to start backing off and paying attention to all of the different changing experiences that are coming to do insight and um, looking into the mind and the body. And we'll talk about more about what, what that kind of practice in, in this next three weeks. Tonight, next two weeks after tonight. Does that make sense? I'm saying it pretty quick. Okay. Now I have to add one more thing. There's a whole other... So the, the way I just described, which is the way most of Theravada Buddhism teaches meditation, these two paths, that actually was developed in, a, in an important commentary that was written about a thousand years after the Buddha died. If you go back to the discourses actually at the time of the Buddha, they didn't separate them out. There's not a separate path of the concentration and a separate path of the insight. They're actually integrated and synthesized into one thing. And you're doing both of them at the same time. So even if you get into really strong concentration states, you don't lose the, the experience of the body. Does that make sense? Yeah. So that's just real quick. There's a lot there that I glossed over and I realized I said it really quick. So I'll just add in, for those of you who are interested, there's many different meditation techniques in Vipassana, not just one, but I'll just use the breath. That's my practice is breath meditation. If you did nothing else but just bring your awareness to the breath and stayed with the breath, coming back to the breath, both of those, the concentration and the mindfulness would strengthen together without you even having to think about everything that was just said. It just happens. And when that happens, we start to the word Vipassana, it really means to see clearly. The vipassana is, comes from this word pasati, to see, and the vi, it really means to kind of penetrate into. So it's a seeing that penetrates into things. And you need the concentration and the mindfulness to do that. So that seems clear to you, but somehow I have a 
feeling that might have been confusing to other people. Is that true? Did it conf- was it confusing? Okay. Any other questions about uh, meditation practice? How about the, um, um, for those who are new, if, you don't have to say anything if you don't feel comfortable, but I just want to know, was it clear on the instructions? Clear? Okay. All right, well, um, we'll have some time at the end for some discussion, and if other things come up around the meditation practice itself later, feel free to um, bring it up. Okay, so this is a big topic, hatred, greed, and delusion. And if you stick around, if you're new, if you stick around the Dharma scene long enough, you'll just hear it over and over again, these three things, hatred, greed, and delusion. So... um, So what's me- meant by, it's really a euphemism. When we, when we say hatred, all they mean there is any kind of aversion. It's not just the, the way we tend to normally think of the word hatred, but that's what they mean when they say it. It's anything in our experience that we say, I don't like this, get this away from me. That's aversion. You can see hatred's a form of aversion. It's kind of pushing something away. I don't want to experience this. I don't want to see this. I don't want this around. That's hatred. Greed is the opposite. It's any, we say greed, but it's any time we're trying to hold on to something and get more of it and pull it towards us. Right? I don't want to let go of this. And then underneath that is what we call delusion, and we'll talk a lot more about what that means. But for now, let's just say that um, it means not seeing things clearly. Matter of fact, Vipassana, we're trying to learn to see things more clearly. Now, if you ask most people, they would say, well, what, I don't know, what do you mean? I see things just fine. I look around, here's me, here's you, I see the world. And, and yeah, and that's all true, of course. Of course that's true. Um, we'll come back to that but, uh, very topic, but for now, let's just say that there are other... Things are not always as they appear um, at first glance. Maybe I'll just leave it at that for now. And uh, and want to explore that topic and see if you, know, you may or may not agree. We'll have some discussion about that later, but you may or may not agree if that's true. But um, I'm just going to propose that as maybe a just a thesis uh, for now. Okay. One thing that's also talked about is when we get, it's, a, it's, it's about freeing ourselves from hatred, greed, and delusion. And the way it's talked about in the classic texts is when you free yourself from it, they, 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 they just use this pretty uh, bland language. They'll just say the freedom from it is non-hatred, non-greed, and non-delusion. Right? So, you know, what's that? Well, what is it if we don't, if we're not in aversion to something? Then as we start to let go of the version, we're able to be more present with it and actually of the movement positive. It's actually of a, a opening of the heart in love. The opposite of hatred is love. Right? So non-hatred is really a, a very wholesome, skillful, positive state. Um, non-greed, you know, when we're greedy, we're, that image of greed, of like holding on, I want more, I want more. You know, there's, there's kind of a sense of if we can free ourselves from that, there's a kind of a softening, a letting go, an opening up, and just allowing ourselves just to be with things more without having to cling and grasp onto things. So it's a more of an ease of being with things. 
And then, the, and then non-delusion is wisdom. And that's the one we're going to we'll talk about. Maybe we'll get to it tonight, but maybe next time. Um, there is a, um, a Tibetan drawing that you'll often see, which is called the uh, Wheel of Life. It shows these wheels, circles upon circles upon circles. And so in the outer layers are all these different aspects of, of life that they talk about. And all the different, you know, there's a lot of beliefs in, in Buddhism traditionally about multiple lifetimes. And you don't have to believe in any of that stuff. But in, traditionally it's, it's there. Uh, multiple lifetimes and heaven realms and hell, hell realms and all these different realms of being. And they're depicted in this, in this wheel where it's possible to be reborn depending on your karma and, and all of that. Uh, you know, some of us might believe in some of that and some of us might not. It's not necessary to believe in any of that. I'm just saying that that's, that that's in the depiction. And then as you circle in, in the middle of, that all, of all of that, which is kind of what's fueling it all, it shows a, um, a pig and a snake and a chicken. The, the, the pig is greed. The snake is aversion and the chicken is the ignorance or delusion. And it's said that it's the hatred and the greed and the delusion that's fueling all of the rebirths over and over and, 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 and causing us to take all kinds of actions, uh, you know, just as we're in reaction based on uh, with those forces working on us. And so that sort of impels us into action. But even if we don't believe in any of that, multiple lifetimes or rebirth or any of that, if we just look into our lives here and now, and that's the way I'm going to propose that we uh, think about it for tonight and the next two weeks, is we can see that you know, for all of us, uh, maybe saying hatred and greed are kind of strong words, but... Um, how much we start to notice how much in our own lives are we driven by you know you know we, we're going through our lives and we have the, just whatever experiences come to us and the ones we don't like well we tend to want to push it away get away we're in reaction to things and so it does kind of fuel how or, or um, we, we tend to react from that. The same thing if there's things we really want. So we tend to be led around by our, by our moods, by our cravings, by our wants and our desires. And that's really getting to the heart of what uh, the Buddha pointed to as sort of one of the problems with the human condition. A perfect example is I was just reflecting on uh, this, this half-hour sitting. I mentioned earlier that I know that it can be a long Sometimes half hour can feel like a long time. Even if you've been meditating a long time, it can feel like a long time. But especially if you're new and you're sitting and maybe you sit and close your eyes and say, for example, a lot of sleepiness comes. Well, that can be real unpleasant to sit. You know, when's that bell going to ring? And we're sitting here and you're trying to you're nodding off. Right. It can be very unpleasant. Or you just feel the opposite of that, which is kind of restless. You know, I can't settle down and I can't, you know, and, and that's also can be kind of unpleasant, right? And those are all very common because, um, let's face it, our minds, t- most of us, are, we don't spend time training our minds. So we shouldn't expect when we come in just to sit and meditate that we're going to instantly be able to sit and, and just get calm and peaceful and drop into these meditative states. It takes some practice. 
like anything. So until we've trained our minds, um, not always, but it certainly can be um, a challenge to sit for half an hour. I happen to be, and so I've been meditating a long time, and it's not like every meditation is pleasant. Those of you who are long-time meditators, I know there are a number of you here, you know that at, once you start to train the mind and develop some of this concentration, that um, you can have some just wonderful sits that are just very pleasant. You're just really calm and deep. It's hard to describe these things, but you know, so many words we can use. So I happen to be having a sit like that this evening as I'm sure some of you were. It was great. Didn't want the bell to ring. I'm the bell ringer. And I was thinking, oh, I don't want the bell to ring. I just want to sit a little longer. That just happened to be having that sit. And I was reflecting. And a couple of times I opened my eyes to look around just to kind of check in. And, you know, I noticed a couple of people kind of nodding off and a few people looking around. You know, nothing wrong. That's just natural, right? And trying to just gauge how the group's doing. And so, and that's what made me think, oh, yeah, you know, it's, if, if you're not having a real calm and peaceful one, you're probably one of the ones saying, oh man, ring the bell. I'm sitting here saying, no, don't ring the bell. That's a perfect example. Right? Why is it that I didn't want the bell to ring? Because I just wanted more and more and more of that pleasant feeling. That's the grade. Right? I confess that was what was happening. Oh yeah, this feels great. Right? Don't we all want to feel great? Who doesn't want to feel great? It's, it's, not, it's not a judgment. It's part of being a human being. But we just want to start to notice and not be caught at it and at the effect of it. Right? And if you're sitting here and it's really unpleasant, or say, for example, you're sitting in a position that hurts your body, either in the chair, if you're sitting down, maybe the knee hurts or back aches. Right? It hurts. You don't want to keep sitting. Right? Ring the bell. And then another thing that happens, some of you heard me uh, point this out before, but it's very common and it's worth uh, repeating. What can often happen is we're sitting and then you hear the bell ring and, you know, and then the mind just goes, you're having a hard time. And the mind just goes, oh. you know, nothing's changed. You haven't even moved, right? You're in hell, you're in hell, you're in hell. You're in heaven. Right? Ah, Finally. That's a very interesting place to look because that shows, that's the place, all that shift was totally in the mind, right? Totally in the mind. So I think it's, it's, it's worth, it points out how much of our suffering we create. I'm not saying we create all of our suffering in our own minds. I'm not going to say that. But a certain amount, actually I think probably a, a lot, Because and it's there's there's a there's a um, well-known image used by the Buddha. Somewhat, it's it's some of you heard this. The, the simile of the two arrows. Uh, the Buddha somewhat asked the Buddha, "What's the difference between an ordinary person and an enlightened person?" And the Buddha said, well, everybody experiences all the pleasant, the unpleasant, the ups and downs of life just being a human being. So when, say, for example, difficulties come and unpleasant come, he likened that to being shot by an arrow in the sense that that's a kind of extreme example, but it's unpleasant. It hurts. It's painful. Both the enlightened person and the ordinary person, they're human beings both, they both experience the pain, the unpleasantness of it. 
But to the enlightened person, he doesn't make a problem about it, he or she. He's able to be present just with... It, it doesn't... The person's well, deep place of well-being hasn't been shaken by the circumstance. Whereas the ordinary person adds a whole second layer of suffering on top of the actual pain itself, which is the place of... This is the, the hatred, the aversion, the place of not this, not this. This has to make this go away. That's a whole other level of suffering. Right? Whereas the enlightened person, they only get shot. That's like being shot by a second arrow. Where the enlightened person only gets shot by an arrow once. Very interesting. Some of you have heard the quote from Sylvia Borstein, which I thought was very good, where she says, um, pain is required, suffering is optional. You know? There's a difference between pain and suffering. That's a distinction we should make. Sometimes people say, gee, I don't get that. I don't really quite understand that. Well, I'll just use an example of something mild. Say I'm sitting here and knee pain is something that um, is common for people who sit cross-legged. So, so I say I'm sitting, and then just a little bit, not strong, but just the first hints because of just a very light unpleasantness comes in the knee. Very first hints of it. If I notice that, if I'm have a little concentration, have some mindfulness, I can actually still be quite present with that. I can notice the sensations in the knee. Maybe it feels like a, oh, let's see, it's kind of a, well, I have some now. It's, it's kind of a pulling, kind of a burning, burning, little stabbing feeling. Not bad, but you know. Okay, so there it is. Right there, it's happening. I can feel it. Now, if it got strong enough, I might not be able to do the experiment in the way I'm doing now. But right now, it's not that strong. So I notice that also, I'm not having any problem about it being there. I notice it. I notice it's actually, it's unpleasant. It's not a pleasant feeling. It's an unpleasant feeling. I feel quite, can, can stay or go as far as I'm concerned. No problem. You can all imagine having, right? Something like that. That's making the difference between the pain and the suffering. Now, if I contract around it, oh, gee, my knee's hurting, and oh, I can't stretch it out on the teacher, and everybody will see that I can't, or whatever I do, <laughs> I've gotten caught in the aversion, right? It's a whole other level. But instead of contracting around, if I'm able to kind of relax around a little bit, it's a whole different way of being. What we start to do really is, the, the, the bottom line to all of this is, is the shift that happens is, Rather than our whole well-being completely being dependent on the nature of the experience itself, with practice, we can start, and I don't know if you ever get to where, where you're completely free from the quality of any experience. Maybe a Buddha is like that. But certainly we can get to a place where we shift from having to have certain experience and having to not have certain other experiences. The shift is in what is the relationship I'm having with whatever experience there is in the moment. And it's more about our relationship with our experience than the nature of the experience itself. Using just this little, kind of a silly example of the knee pain is a perfect example there. Right? No problem. No suffering. Now we all know if I were to sit here long enough, the pain would get stronger, 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 stronger. And... Um, you know, we'll reach some point where 
it would cross over my threshold and I wouldn't be able to be with it. And um, I probably would be getting in more of a struggle about it. We all have a limit. You know, until we're Buddhas, you know, we're, we're human beings, we have a limit. So we start to work with things. We don't pick the strongest thing to start to work with, right? We start easy and we grow and grow and expand. So to the extent that we're caught, I'm just repeating here, if we're caught to in hatred and greed and delusion, we're not free that our well-being is dependent upon circumstance, basically. Another way to think about this is um, there's what's called the, the eight, world, eight worldly dharmas. And these are four pairs that make eight total. And it's saying this is what really makes the world go round for most people. When I say make the world go round, this is what, what we're all motivated by. So the first of these is pleasure and pain. And that would be, we want more. And when I say pleasure, I'm not trying to say something like hedonistic or anything, but just, you know, we want more of the experiences we want, whatever pleasant is for us, and we don't want unpleasant experiences. That's just, right, being a human being. So pleasure and pain. The second one is gain and loss, right? Everybody would like gain. Nobody wants loss. Right? Pleasure, pain, gain, and loss. Um, praise and blame. And the last is fame and disrepute. Right? Now, fame, you may or may not care about fame, but does anybody want disrepute? No. Nobody. Could you say them over Yeah, let me say them slowly. The first one is um, pleasure and pain. I see you're writing in a little writing tablet there, so I'm going to just go slow. Pleasure and pain. Second one is gain and loss. The third one is uh, praise and blame. And the fourth one is fame and disrepute or ill repute, whichever way you want to say it. I notice in my own life how much of what I do consciously or unconsciously centers around some version of these. Right? You know, what is it? I have a life. I'm, um, I'm involved in all these things I'm doing. We all are. I don't see any people. Everybody's in. I don't see any monks, nuns. Probably, I'm guessing no one here is off living in a cave. No. We're involved in our lives. Buddha's not asking us to go live in a cave. He's not asking us to do anything. He's just suggesting that we start to notice. That's all. Notice as human beings how much of our lives revolve around things such as these eight worldly dharmas. When I look into my own life, I would say about everything. (laughs) Just about everything is some version of right not wanting to have some version of unpleasant whatever that is and i think all of these you know un- pain loss disrepute and blame that's all unpleasant pleasure gain fame and praise all some version of things are okay right? 
And all of us want to be okay, right? I'll bet if we went around and you know, people are welcome to share later when we open up for, you don't have to, but I'll bet if we went around and checked with everyone. You know, most people, of course, I only know a few people here this evening, but I'm just, so this is a generalization. But most people, you know, what they're looking for in life, in life is some version of, you want to be okay. You want to, you have your home, you have your work, you want to have probably whatever your version. Some people like to be more connected with people, some less connected. So whatever that looks like, you want it to be in the way you want. You want to be okay financially. You want to have health, right? I mean, most people, what, most people really actually aren't asking for that much. Um, you know, it's not like you're trying to be the president. There's nothing wrong with that. I'm just saying that's a hard thing. Or like to get into the MBA. That's a fine thing. Or become a movie star, right? That's fine if you want to do it. It's kind of hard because not that many people make it into the NBA movie. That's my only point with that. That wasn't a good example. But my point is what most people want is some version of just trying to be okay. And we can see um, how hard that can be. Not that we can never feel okay. I hope everyone here has felt some, knows both happiness, joy, and suffering. Life's a mix. Some of us have more of one than the other, depending on at any time in our lives. But I hope everyone here has at least experienced joy and happiness sometime. And I know we've all experienced suffering. Okay? So I'm not saying it's not possible to ever be okay. But, you know, I don't know what it is, but for most people I know, and it's certainly been true for myself too, that um, there's that element in life. Certainly there's an element in there that can be there for some of us that's like something's missing. This isn't it. I'm not there. Personally, I don't know what there is. I just know it ain't this. <laughs> and so I'm moving forward. And I'm doing this, and I'm writing my book, you know. Maybe I'll be there when that happens. I know better, but I'm moving ahead. We're doing what we're doing in life, consciously or unconsciously. Right? To, to set life up to look, to have more of what we think is good and right and pleasant and less of the unpleasant. Given the fact that those forces are not going to go away in us, I don't think. I don't know anyone in which it has gone away. At least I think we can start to be aware that this process is happening to us. That as living beings, you know, if you take a single cell, like a bacteria, and you give the right stimulus on it, if it's the kind it likes, it'll kind of go towards it. If it's the food, or if it doesn't like light shined on it, you shine the light, it'll kind of try to move away. Right? Even that's what life does. It's going away from the unpleasant and towards the pleasant. So given that that's part of being a living being, how can we start to free ourselves from this? Because to the extent we're caught in it, not that we're experiencing it, that's okay. We're, not, we're human beings. But to the extent we're at the mercy of these forces, we don't have any freedom or control 
our own well-being is now up for grabs. It's just thrown out into the uh, world of external circumstances. Does that make sense? Right? I think it would be nice to live in a way where our happiness or our well-being is not completely up to external circumstances. That wouldn't be... I think that would be okay where it's more um, within our own inner power. That's why it's such a cliche when you hear about meditation being... You know, you come to meditate to get inner peace, inner happiness. Isn't that a way meditation gets talked about? It is kind of a cliche because it gets said so much because it's true. So we're starting to learn with so many various practices how to just little bit by little bit um, find a place within ourselves that can ride through all the ups and downs and through the pleasure pain, the gain loss, the fame, the disrepute, the praise and blame with a little more balance and ease. So we're not just jerked around by it all. That's the place that rests at peace. And that place of equanimity is not a place that stops feeling things or is disconnected like we come into some numb, bland place. It's not what it's talking about. When we talk later about the waking up from the, the hatred grief, from the delusion part, we're actually talking about really connecting with our own experience and with our lives more than ever. Really coming alive and awake to things and at the same time resting at peace in the midst of it all. Right? That's a place of freedom. That's a place of freedom. And you don't get there in one day or maybe one lifetime or you know, according to the Buddhist cosmology necessarily in many lifetimes, right? But look, we've got to do something, right? We might as well try to free ourselves from hatred, greed, and delusion. And it is possible and many of people here I'm sure know that and I've certainly found in my own life And I don't think that Buddhist practice is necessarily the only way. It's the way that I know. But there's probably many other paths too. Uh, I'm certainly not going to say it's only Buddhist Dharma practice. But I certainly know that Buddhist Dharma practice is one path that does bear real fruit. And we can actually come to more a place that's more clear and awake and free just in the middle of our lives. No question about it. And I know that there are people here who I happen to know for a fact would say the same. And you don't have to wait until you're some Buddha or whatever being fully enlightened is to know that. Matter of fact, just take a moment actually. We'll do a little experiment here and then we'll open it up for some discussion. For those who want to, just a little thought experiment. Reflect back on some time in your life. It might be a long time ago. For those of you who are young, maybe don't have... For me, I have to, I'll, I've got longer to work with. See if there's a place in your life. And there's no right or wrong here. So if you don't see anything on this, it's fine. Don't beat yourself up. It's just an experiment. Is there any place in your life you can look at where you say, wow, you know... 
this is an area that really used to give me trouble. I used to get really caught up or difficult or struggle in some area in my life, maybe around relationships or self-esteem or your, I don't know, something about how you were in life that you now can look at now and say, you know, I don't suffer nearly as much around this as I used to. You know, I am freer in this one area in my life than I used to be. It's a little better. Can you find something? I certainly can. For me, it's easy given what a basket case I was uh, in my younger years, so it was quite easy to do that. But for some of you, maybe it's not as easy. That is a real, I call it fruit of practice, but you may not have been practicing. Maybe all you did was stick around in this life long enough till you finally got some wisdom just from living long enough. And that's fine too. However we get there is good. But you can really look at through whatever way some real freedom that came more than you had. That's that's some progress. Are you a Buddha? I actually don't know, but if I'm wrong, you can come up to me later and I'd like to meet you. But for those of you who are not, it's like, no, we're not Buddhas. And you can still see. So we don't have to make it like, oh, there's this enlightenment thing out there that's like, I don't know, boy, that word enlightenment can feel awfully far away from me, whatever enlightenment is. We don't have to think like that. We can start coming to more and more freedom here and now from these, what are called the three poisons. I don't know if I said that earlier. They're called the three poisons. Hatred, greed, and delusion. And what would that be to, to live with the heart and mind free or freer from hatred, greed, and delusion? Right, what would that be? I think it would be a, a mind that's more clear, awake, more loving, more compassionate. You know? more at ease, more peaceful. So what we'll do is um, uh, we'll stop now and have some discussion. What's going to happen in the next two weeks is just continuing on this topic. This is sort of an overview of sort of this whole idea of hatred, greed, and delusion and why it might be a good idea to not be as caught in it as all of us are, right? if we can get more free. So then starting next week, we'll actually look a little closer at well, what's, what's, what is this the greed part, what is the hatred, what is the delusion, and we'll see how far we get next time. And then certainly by the, by the third Thursday, um, actually look at some practices. Uh, part of the practices we're doing are just the things we do here, but how can we actually practice uh, uh, around this top, this angle on things? So anyway, we have a few minutes. If anybody has, it could be the questions are fine, but also if you have any comments or anything to share, anything is fine too. And one question, are people supposed to use that portable microphone? We don't have to, but I just am checking. I don't see it out anywhere. Okay, I'll just repeat the question or the comment. Yeah. So, Richard, what's worked for me is uh, the idea that Tom Jeff talked about things through Bhikkhu. And that is, rather than come into the meditation hall and think, what am I going to get out of this practice? I like the idea of what can I bring to the practice. Mm. And that's that shifted it completely. And it really helped 
when I was in, as you know, I was in Burma for a period of time at the monastery, and to bring that sense of things to the practice. And by showing up, you know, magic happens from there. Because mm. I bubble up and so forth. Thank you very much. Some of you may not have heard out there. I don't know if you did. So it's hard to repeat everything because it was a comment, but so I'll lose a lot of what, what he said. But basically, this shift between what can I get out of the practice to when we show up or we come to sit or whatever it is coming to the practice in a moment is what can I bring to the practice or what do I bring of myself to the practice? And that it just opened up a whole other... Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Would an enlightened person feel emotional pain? Would an enlightened person feel an emotional pain? Yeah, or would an enlightened person suffer emotionally? Yeah. Would they um, gracefully go through these changes and not, you know, I guess, I don't know quite how to ask it. Right, no, that's a, that's a very deep question. And, and um, so let me say this, as someone who has not reached the end of the path, I don't actually know the answer to that question. However, um, I'll give you a couple of thoughts about it here. Um, there are two ways that people, this is actually, it's, it's, a, it's a deep question and people have kind of kicked these questions around. One thing would be, if someone was completely freed from hatred, greed, and delusion, would any challenging emotions come up in that person at all? Because, right, you wouldn't be reacting off things. And a lot of the times when we get have emotions come up, of course it is because there's some reaction. If something happens and, you know, like a perfect example, I don't want to get off into politics too much, but say pick, if you happen to be someone with strong opinions, pick, say, some political figure who really drives you crazy, whoever that might be. And... Um, uh, no, and I'm not, I'm not saying who it should be, you know, because I, wait, I want to be careful here. See, every, well, I'm going to come back to your question here. One thing, this is really important. Everybody thinks I met George Bush, but I did not. We tend to think that in, a, in these Dharma groups that, you know, everybody's a liberal. It's not true. In a group this size, I guarantee you right here tonight, everybody in here is not a liberal. Statistically, um, it turns out that almost everybody is. Not everybody is. There are people here who think George Bush's policies are right. They're happy he's doing what he's doing. And that's, that's the reality there. So, and one of the things that I think can happen sometimes, I'm kind of going off the subject, I realize, but one of the things that can happen is, is that we can sometimes, I fall into it. Like I personally, uh, I'm not a fan of President Bush, okay? So I could fall into, and I've done this, this is how I learned this. I would make a joke like whatever, I'll go say something, I'll say, well, you know, George Bush is an idiot, ha, ha, ha. And then everybody else is going, ha, ha, ha. And it turns out there's two or three people who were cringing inside, like they're the hidden, you know, it's not safe for those people. Uh, I think it's really important to acknowledge that. And that... um, um, so the way I do it is, and I'm real sincere about this, is that, um, you know, if I'm, if I, I'll, I have used like a George Bush example, but I'll just tell people, you know, if that doesn't work for you, just plug in whatever, Clinton, and the analogy will work for you. So the point isn't, at least for me, like, who, so I really didn't mean, <laughs> so 
sorry. I just wanted to say that. <laughs> I didn't want all the people who, the two or three who are cringing in here, you know, that's not, that's, uh, so, sorry. Anyway, what was your question? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, so, right. I remember, thank you. So, The person who was, say we'll use the word enlightened, fully awakened, completely freed from hatred, greed, and delusion, wouldn't have the reaction towards Clinton, Bush, whatever it is, right? wouldn't come up in the mind. They would still see what was happening. They might disagree. They might want to actually be engaged and take some action in some way. But the heart and mind would not close off to that person. They would still be open in compassion and love. They wouldn't lose their equanimity and they might say, well, you know, I don't know if that's such a great thing. Maybe we should, shouldn't follow that policy. And they may even want to be engaged in the world and may say, you know, I think I might want to put some effort into helping change the policy. You know, it doesn't mean whatever, however they would act, but they wouldn't lose anything like that. So from that place, that part that fuels the wouldn't come up and it's true, you wouldn't have any emotions at all. However, there's a whole nother level of it's like being shot with a one arrow rather than two, which says whatever happens, because you don't stop being a human being. After the Buddha was enlightened, he didn't stop being a human being. You know, he still complained. He had a bad back. He'd tell Ananda, you know, you go give the Dharma talk. My back's killing me. I have to go. He, he didn't say it like that, but they preserved it in this fancy language. But that's basically what he was saying. He got in arguments with his relatives and stuff. So who knows what his state of mind was? This is the part. So this is the piece I'm not too clear about. There's other levels in which emotions can come up that it's not necessarily in the moment something happens in the re- and it's a reaction, but it's just kind of our minds have been sort of habituated in certain ways, maybe from our childhoods or whoever got there to, to act in certain ways. And I don't know what would happen if, if all of that just changes when you're fully enlightened. It may not be coming off of hatred, greed, and delusion. It may just be the, runt, the, the workings of the mind. But then again, because we're not caught in delusion, we'd actually see clearly, rather than being identified with it, my mind, I'm called, it just would know, oh, this thoughts, emotions are coming up, and it would rest in peace and not have to push that away. So there's one piece on which some of the parts wouldn't come up at all, and there's another part with whatever does come up is just open, accepted, not clung to, not pushed away. So it would be some version of those two. But that's an interesting question. That's an interesting question. Any other thoughts or questions? Okay. Yeah. Okay, so we have grief, hate, and delusion. And I've heard that we have all those qualities in us, but one is more predominant than others. So we all have one that is. Yeah, so you know, there's many different models out there how you can look at how people are. You know, like Enneagram is a model. I don't know the Enneagram, but you know, there's like the uh, pe- people always ask. My wife's trying to figure out if I'm a. I used to be a four, then I was a nine. Now I think I'm a. I don't know what I, I don't even know what it means. But you know, so there's you know there's a, if we can classify, and there's other classifications. You know, in childhood de- development, depending on what stages the wounding happen, are you like a burden type or a with all these different types. So here's a, just another classification is all it is. And yeah, so, so what they'll say is, is that we're all a combination of hatred, greed, and delusion. 
but we different. Some tend to be. Um, we tend to have one predominant, and then they'll say, "Oh, you're a greed type, you're a hatred type." So my wife's an aversion type. She knows. I mean, you know, it's not. I'm not criticizing her. Yeah, aversion type. There. Uh, I'm a delusion type. And, you know, none of them are that great. Cause like, well, gee, I'm delusion type. That doesn't feel that good. But then I don't know if aversion type, but, if, but what's left? I'm a greed type. It's just like, you know, none of it's so great. But the truth is, I really am a delusion type. Here's how you know. If you walk into a room, and you may not be able to tell if you're kind of evenly balanced. Um, one may not pop out to you. It doesn't mean you don't have them, but you may not. But, but if you're really one or the other, say you walk into a room, the way they say it is, the greed type will just, and this isn't saying it in a negative way either, but the greed type will just notice all the things they like about it. They tend to see all the things they like. The aversion type tends to notice all the things that they don't like and what's wrong with things. And the delusion type, we're so out of it, we don't notice anything. <laughs> You know, actually, my theory is that delusion type may be the tough ones to live with, but actually experience of being a delusion type is the less suffering because you don't know. You're just like, you know, it's just like, see you later. Oh, gee. Oh, there's a wall there. You know, so, for example, my wife being an aversion type, she'll really notice when, like, if cleaning needs to be done on the house way before I am. I'm just not seeing the dirt. I'm going around and just not noticing the floor. It's dirty. And then when she points it out, it's like, oh, yeah, I guess it could use some sweeping. But, boy, she'll notice it way ahead. You know. So, yeah, there's the three types. And we don't want to get too identified with them all. It's just a way to come to know ourselves better. If we get really identified, like, I am a... See, that's another... That's really delusion. No matter if you really... It's a whole other level of... We don't want to get hooked into some fixed notion of who we think we are. We'll talk, for those of you who are coming back, we're going to get more into that when we talk about the, the delusion of the three. It, what's the wisdom? Wisdom is seeing clearly the way things really are. What's that mean? We don't have time to get into it tonight. Okay. Um, so well, we need to, let's uh, just do a short closing then. And to do that, um, I just invite you (coughs) just to, you know, you don't have to get in any fancy posture, but just to get comfortable. And the first thing I invite you to to do is just to... um, if your awareness has gone out into the realm of concepts and discussion and out into the room, if that's happened, then I invite you to bring it back inside to yourself. So using the mindfulness just to connect inside in your experience. And just to notice whatever's there in your experience. There, there may be a lot going on or there may not be much. And it might be pleasant, it might be unpleasant, or maybe kind of neutral. And I invite you also to notice not only the quality, the nature of your experience itself, but how are you being with whatever's going on? 
what's your relationship with your experience now? And can there be a sense of, of just allowing, allowing yourself to be however that looks right now? Without the aversion, without the clinging. And if you're finding that there is something where there is some kind of struggle and you're not able to really just be present with yourself in a way, with some easeful way, then bring some acceptance for that place. And then I invite you to reflect that um, we have all used our time together wisely this evening, every one of us. Coming together um, to meditate, to train the mind, to practice, learning how to be present and to quiet down, just to be with ourselves. And then to reflect on these Dharma teachings around hatred, greed, and delusion and freeing ourselves from them that really bring us to a place of an open, loving heart and a quiet mind. And so anytime we spend time this way, even if it's just a few moments, it's of great uh, positive benefit for ourselves. And it is also of great benefit to others. And so to realize that it's not possible to practice for ourselves alone is literally not possible. Anytime we cultivate these wholesome qualities in ourselves, that affects everyone that we encounter in our lives. And so we can make that uh, sense of practicing for ourselves and for others more conscious. And so if you'd like, you can offer up, it's, it's a prayer or a wish or an intention that if there's been any goodness or any merit obtained or generated by our time together this evening, may it be for the benefit and liberation of all beings. May all beings be happy and peaceful and may all beings come to an end of suffering. So thank you all. I hope you have a good evening.